Thank you, men. Thank you. Children are dismissed. And please open your Bibles to Psalm 52. 52nd Psalm in the Bible. And again, as we're going through the Psalms, one of the things that I love about the Psalms that I find very helpful in the Psalms that I don't... um, The rest of Scripture does not do in the way the Psalms do is they teach us how to approach God. God has given us 150 Psalms, songs, to show us how spirit-filled, godly men and women approach God in the various and variegated issues of life. I remember as a new Christian, I sort of imagined the Psalms just said, praise God, praise God, 150 different ways with maybe a couple help me's thrown in. And as I've studied the Psalms, they're just so rich in dealing with different issues of life. The Psalms are real. We've talked about suffering before. We've talked about um, being in need. The Psalms make no um, pretensions and a super spiritualness that pretends everything's fine when it's not. And so today in Psalm 52, David is going to teach us how to deal with horrific evil. Horrific evil. Not just small evil, not just people out to get you, not just enemies, but massacres. Because those things happen in life. Although some of those things have sadly recently happened, even in our country. And how do you deal with that? What do you, what do, you do with that? How does a godly person respond to that? Well, we will see that today in Psalm 52. The Psalm title, which as best as we know, are original to the text, are very instructive, especially in this case. Psalm 52, to the choir master, a maskeel of David. And I'll just stop there. A maskeel, we saw that previously, is a psalm that's of instruction. The word means to make one wise. This is a teaching song. Song to teach, to make wise. This is instruction. When Doeg, the Edomite, came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. And don't worry, we're going to go back and take a look at that in case that story doesn't jump immediately to mind. But it led to the mass slaughter of the priests of God at Nob. And now let's read the psalm. <coughs> psalm 52. Why do you boast of evil, almighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. Salah. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from the tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living, Salah. The righteous shall see in fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. Let's pray. Lord God, um, we we live in a sin-cursed, fallen world. 
where great evil does occur, sadly. And Lord, while we long for the day when death will be done away with, when the lion will lay with the lamb, Lord, we, we know that now as we await the return of your son, great evil can be done and is often done. And so, Lord, help us to learn from David's instruction. Help us to become wise in knowing how to deal and interpret and respond to such things, Lord God. These, these issues are not pleasant or, or fun, but sadly in this world necessary. And so we trust you to show us how you would have us be. In Jesus' name, amen. So now keep your, keep your bookmark here in Psalm 52. We will go back to the account that sets this psalm up in 1 Samuel 21 and 22. So keep your, keep your finger here, and we're going to go back to 1 Samuel 21 and 22. Now the setting is this. David has already been anointed king. He is the um, God's king, but he is not the king in function. The king in function is Saul, whom the Lord has rejected for first making a sacrifice that he had no business making, and secondly, more significantly, for sparing Agag, the king of the Amalekites, for sparing the choicest livestock and for making a statue of himself so that he would receive the honor and praise. And for those two things, he first lost the dynasty, and then he lost the kingdom. God has sought a man after his own heart. And, and so the Spirit of God departs from Saul, and it falls upon David, and David begins to have great success. And initially, Saul is rejoicing in this. Saul is pleased when David slays Goliath until he hears the words of that catchy hit song, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. And from that moment onward, the text says, Saul eyed David with suspicion. And Saul slowly spirals down in suspicion to covert attacks at David, to open attacks at David. And David is on the run, fleeing for his life from Saul. He has just recently made a covenant with Jonathan, Saul's son, who has told him, yes, my father is intent on killing you. And so David flees. And in his haste, he leaves without provisions. And so in 1 Samuel 21, we pick up the narrative. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? So Ahimelech knows something's up. Something's not right. When David, the commander of Saul's army, comes without provisions all by himself. Um, and then David says to Ahimelech, um, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything about the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? And, and he asked for food and provisions. And you keep reading, there's no food except the showbread um, used in the altar in the worship of God. And Ahimelech gives that to David and his men. And Saul, David asks for a weapon and he gives him the sword of Goliath whom David slew and and then, verse 7, Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdmen, herdsmen. Um, and he witnesses Ahimelech giving David food and a weapon. 
And then David flees to Gath at the end of 21, which is where he, which is actually Goliath's hometown. It's not too smart showing up to Goliath's hometown when you're the guy who killed him with his sword. And not surprisingly, David gets recognized. He pretends to be mad. He dribbles on his beard, which is the first reference of basketball in the Bible. Um, okay. All right. All right. Um, keeping Pastor Gary's spirit alive. And... And then David flees from there. Um, and I'm trying to point out the time that passes. He goes to the cave of Adullam. And the Lord tells him the people there will not protect him. And only after all this has happened, time has passed, does, does the narrative pick back up with Doeg and Saul. And Saul is having a bad day. He's feeling very sorry for himself. He's, he's having a pity party in 1 Samuel 22, 6. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the Tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand and all his servants are standing about him. And Saul said to the servants who stood about him, Here now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my own son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me. The lion wait is at this day. So Saul's throwing a pity party and he just basically says, look, you guys on his side because he's paying you off. He's made promises to you. What's going on? He, he imagines all of his men are against him. And in that context, Doeg, who's been there the whole time, opens up his mouth and says something. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword, and, in, and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? You see, at this point, Saul's attack on David has not been public. Um, David is a national hero. David is an honored military leader. And, And so... The priest does not know that Saul and, and, and David are not close. And so he says, look, you know, why wouldn't I honor and supply your general, your captain, our, our great national hero? He says in verse 15, Is today the first time that I've inquired of God for him? No, let not the king impute anything to his servant or all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of this, much or little. Which is just a way of saying, I have no idea what's going on. I'm just doing what I've always done. And Saul, in his paranoia, and he's really descending into madness eventually. Saul will have none of his excuses. And the king said, you shall surely die. Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. 
And the thing that Saul commanded was so grotesque and so evil that we read, the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. This is probably the most high-handed sin in the Old Testament, to strike down the priests of God when you were supposed to be a Yahweh-worshipping king. And Saul's servants wouldn't do it, but guess who would? Verse 18, And the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, sheep, he put to the sword. This is total war. This is mass slaughter. 85 men and their families were probably dealing with upwards of 200 people or so total. And this man did what Saul's soldiers would not do. He just slaughtered them. Babies, children, women, animals. Just killed them all. It's the type of thing you do when you want to make a point. It's the type of thing you do when you're consumed with anger and hatred. Verse 20, But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safe keeping. So, back to Psalm 52. This is the backdrop. You just got to imagine the devastating news. You are in a country that is supposed to be a Yahweh-worshipping, serving country, with a king who's supposed to be a Yahweh-worshipping, serving king. You've done nothing wrong. In fact, you've acted bravely. And in response to your good deeds, in response to your bravery, you are threatened and you're running for your life. And David has been running and fleeing and running and fleeing and just one step ahead of his pursuers. And, and now he learns that in helping him, God's priests have been slaughtered. Their whole families. I mean, just imagine that. Imagine, you know, as I was thinking of some mode of comparison, as I was in Los Angeles this last week, if I'd heard word that somebody had arrived here and just sort of wiped out the church at Martinsdale, that, that would be the equivalent. Um, some, something as ugly and awful as that. And so David is obviously upset. He's, he's broken. He's, he's emotional. And it shows in this psalm. And yet in this psalm, we're going to see how to respond to such things. But what do you do with that? Is your faith big enough for these types of occurrences? You know, and what, what do we make of God in all this? So we're going to look at three things. We're going to see the way of the wicked, the response of the righteous, and the security of the saints. The way of the wicked, the response of the righteous, and the security of the saints. The way of the wicked in, in verses 1 to 5. And in this section, David is focusing, zeroing in, if you will, on the person of Doeg. And there's, there's some sarcasm in his voice. Obviously, David is upset. And so he opens up, Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? And you could almost translate that, you big shot. Um, Why do you boast... In evil, O mighty man, the steadfast love of the Lord endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor. You worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right, Salah. You love all words that devour a deceitful tongue. 
but God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. Salah. And so this section breaks into two points, the wicked's character and his fate. And David starts with his character. And I, and I want to just make an observation here. Um, you might wonder, what's the point of four verses unpacking the evil of Doeg? Well, I think it's so that we can learn what's going on in, in Doeg's heart. Because the first thing that struck me is the overwhelming emphasis in this section, not on Doeg's mass murdering slaughter, but really just on deceitfulness and treachery. I mean, out of all the things Doeg did, I'm surprised, honestly, as I was reading this, I was surprised David doesn't mention, you would dare do what no one else would do? I mean, even Saul's men wouldn't touch the priests. You not only killed the priests, but you killed their families and their children and their animals. There's just there's not a mention of that. Because David's going after the root of the issue. He's going after what's going on in the heart. He he's understands partly through knowing Doeg, partly through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He understands what's going on in the heart of the wicked. It's, it's too easy to write someone like Doeg off as a sociopath. It's too easy to say he was off his meds. What's really going on in the heart of Doeg? Well, we'll see his character in, in, in three points. First of all, there's his boast. There's his pride. The Hebrew word means to congratulate yourself, to pat yourself on the back. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? He's He's telling himself, job well done. He's very pleased with himself. That's the idea. His boast, he's pleased with himself. He's patting himself on the back. He thinks he's very clever. He thinks that he is very shrewd. I mean, after all, he had this great piece of information and he held on to it till just the right time. See, it's not as though Doeg went straight back to Saul and told him. It's not even as though you could argue that Doeg did this out of some misguided loyalty to Saul. If he was truly loyal to Saul, he would have told him immediately. But the narrative tells us that David went over to Gath and stayed there for a while, then he went over to a cave. And this is days or weeks later. It's not until Doeg sees his opportunity. It's not until he sees how he can cash this in. You know, King Saul is not trusting any of his men, but now he's got a piece of information that'll, that'll make Doeg his right-hand man, his trusted confidant. And so he sees his opportunity, and he, and he puts, puts the priest's actions in the worst possible light, and he's very pleased with himself for this. He thinks he's very clever. He boasts in himself, and not the steadfast love of God. Now, this notion of God's steadfast love will come back up in verse 8, and we'll deal with it more fully then. But I want you to notice that. Right out of the gate, you've got this evil man, Doeg, boasting in himself, boasting in his cleverness, boasting in his evil. And it's contrasted with the steadfast love of God endures all the day. Next, his love. And, and the word love, for a, for a psalm about such evil, the word love shows up four times. Verse one, the steadfast love of God endures all the day. Verse three, you love evil more than good. Verse four, you love all words that devour. And again, verse eight, another mention of the steadfast love of God. Why does Doeg do this? It's because of what he loves. Why do the evil do what they do? Because of what they love. See, our actions flow out of our hearts. Our actions flow out of our affections. Our actions flow out of our desires. Why does... An evil person do evil? Because they love evil. Why does a liar lie? Because he loves lying. 
We do what we enjoy ultimately. Ultimately. Now sometimes there's gonna be a tension where part of me, you know, wants to eat the cookie and part of me wants to, you know, lose some weight. But ultimately I'm gonna do what I want most in the moment. And so Doeg at his heart loves evil, loves words that devour, loves deception. And I want to point something else out here. Again, I was troubled with David focusing on, on Doeg primarily at the level of deception. I mean, notice that. Notice the emphasis here, because we've got to his weapons, which are words. Notice the, the words in this text for words. Verse 1, boast. Verse 2, tongue plots destruction. You worker of deceit. Verse 3, you love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. Verse 4, you love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. Do you, do you get the emphasis? What is David zeroing in on this man? The deception, the twisting of words, the deceit, to which you could argue Doeg didn't lie. I mean, technically, is there anything he said to Saul that was inaccurate? No. Again, this, this is what troubled me, or what I was, had difficulty with beginning of studying this passage, here's a mass-murdering sociopath. David really doesn't touch that issue. And he zeroes in on lying when technically Doeg didn't lie. And, and as I was thinking about it, um, it became clear that when the Bible talks about speaking the truth, it means a whole lot more than not lying. Um, it, it's not good enough for us to say, well, technically I didn't lie. But speaking the truth is about speaking the truth in love. It's Ephesians 4.20, let no unwholesome word Come from your mouth, but only such that will give edification and grace to those who hear. See, we can take the truth and we can put spin on it. And we can, we can do that and we can, we can make the truth look a certain way and put it in its worst possible light. Doeg waits until a depressed king is feeling paranoid to bring this out. And, and so technically he doesn't lie and yet in every sense of the word he's being deceptive. And, and the reason I want to point this out is this. What David is getting at is the root issue. The root of the tree that can ultimately grow mass murder is, is the tendency of the wicked, and this is where it starts pointing back at us, the tendency that we can have to use words, to twist words to our advantage. You know, technically, I didn't lie. Technically. But we can, we can use words to our advantage, and we can twist them, and we can say things at the right time and in the right way to get what we want to manipulate and what David's saying is a heart and a person that enjoys doing that is really no different than Doeg. This is what's going on in his heart. He thinks he's shrewd. He thinks he's Machiavellian. He, he thinks he's very clever. And he's pleased with himself and his promotion in Saul's company. And so we've got to watch out for ourselves if we find ourselves enjoying twisting words, putting spin on words, feeling very pleased with ourselves for cleverly using words because if that tree grows to the point where it bears its full fruit, it can bear fruit like this. See, see David's zooming in at the heart. It's far too easy to write off someone like Doeg as a sociopath. And what type of person, after all, is going to kill babies and children and animals? Well, it starts with a person that loves twisting words, that loves deceit, that is very pleased with himself when he can twist them and use them. You let that tree grow to full fruit, watch out. And so all of a sudden, this is back at us because if you're anything like me, there are times when I can be tempted to, you know, put a little spin on the truth, use it to my advantage. Maybe afterwards, feeling I was shrewd. And we've got to watch out. 
Because that's where David's zooming in at, because God's getting in at the heart. He's getting in at the heart. His weapon, words. And again, the Bible talks about the power of words. The Proverbs talk about there are, are one whose words are like drawn swords. The tongue has the power of life and death. It's seen so clearly here. We have the words of life. The gospel message which saves is of words. And so you see what power the tongue has. A shrewd, clever word at the right time can lead to death in a very real sense. Life-giving words of truth can lead to spiritual life. So Doeg, his character, he boasts, he's pleased with himself because he loves deception. He loves trickery and shrewdness. He loves playing the angles and evil. His weapon of choice, words. What is his fate? And then we get to one of those wonderful, at least in the ESV, but God's statements. You know, so far we've seen this man who thinks he's all-powerful. He thinks he's this great, mighty man. And he's succeeded. He won. After all, he's the one who's standing, and the priests are dead, and David's still running. So, I mean, as, as far as the story goes here in 2 Samuel, who's winning? Well, it looks like Doeg's winning. Even Saul's not winning. The guy's paranoid. Now, the victor in chapter 22 of 1 Samuel, Doeg. He's very pleased with himself. David is running for his life. And yet we have this wonderful news of his fate. God will set things right. God will set things right. And that's ultimately what we've got to put our hope in. Notice, as angry as David is, as, as upset as he is at this abominable action, he doesn't promise personal vengeance. He doesn't say, wait till I see you or wait till I become king and I take care of you. His hope is in the justice and judgment of God. He's trusting that God will act. God will set things right. And here's, here's the great news. God will do it publicly. We know God will do it publicly because David talks about the righteous, what they will do when they see. And what's interesting is in the Bible, we have no idea of Doeg's fate. There's no record in the scripture of how long he lived, how he died. And so I think it's far more likely that the judgment that David's picturing here is the ultimate, ultimate judgment that no one can escape. It's entirely possible that, that God struck Doeg down young in his life. We don't know. But what is for certain is that when Doeg died, and now, thousands of years later, we can be pretty confident he's dead, he stood before the living God. And God will set things right. And more important, or for us, more importantly, God will be seen to set things right. This is, this is I think, the first piece in helping us understand how to respond to horrific evil. Why would God allow this? Why didn't God stop this? Why didn't God send an angel to kill this dog, Doeg, as Spurgeon calls him? Why, why did he stand by and let this happen? Well, God will set things right. When I was at the Shepherds Conference this last week, um, one of the messages was on Isaiah 53 and pointing out this powerful point in Isaiah 53, 11, speaking of Jesus, the suffering servant. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous shall he make the righteous one my servant, shall make many to be accounted righteous. And what that's saying in he will see and be satisfied is this. The suffering servant who is so wrongly mistreated 
when he ultimately sees what God will do with his suffering, he will be satisfied. You see, when the Lord Jesus Christ looks upon his bride when he comes to receive her, all of his redeemed children, he will be satisfied with his suffering. Which is to say, he will understand that God has done good with it. And therefore it is acceptable. We understand the Lord Jesus was horribly mistreated, suffered grave indignity, and yet, Isaiah 53 says, he will be satisfied when he looks upon the many who will be made righteous because of him. There's this notion of satisfaction. Of if, if someone's offended you in sort of olden days, someone, I demand satisfaction. Well, that's that notion. And what this psalm tells us is that God will right the wrongs. He will be seen to right the wrongs. We will be satisfied. The universe will be satisfied. And I know this may be strange, but there's nothing wrong in wanting to see justice done. In Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, as, as the earth is being judged, fifth seal was opened, and I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Holy, sinless saints under the throne of God are crying out for judgment. It can be done in a righteous way. It can certainly also be done in a vindictive, selfish, and sinful way. But it can be done in a righteous way. And then they get this amazing response. They were then each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. See, God's in control. The solution with horrible evil is not to try to let God off the hook and say God had nothing to do with that. He was taking the day off or, well, God doesn't interfere with what people do. No, the saints under the throne are told there's a number there's a number that God has set in his purposes. When that number is complete, and not until then, he will vindicate your blood. The Lord Jesus is awaiting ultimately the vindication of his righteous name. As men every day curse him and, and blaspheme him. And he awaits his father's judgment. And, and we'll see in this psalm, that's ultimately where David goes. But God will set things straight. He will right the wrongs. You will not find ultimate and perfect justice in this life, but only in the life to come. If, if, if you're an atheist, if you're an agnostic, then there is no hope of ultimate justice. Because clearly the wicked prosper and, and the righteous can perish. But the hope we have is that God will set things right. And it's seen in three dramatic pictures of judgment. Verse 5 again, God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. And so these are three big ironies. This big, strong, powerful man gets broken down, demolished like a building. You picture the, the big um, ball at the end of the rope with the crane being swung, the wrecking ball, knocking the building down. God is going to knock down the wicked when he appears strong. Second, he will be torn from his tent. And again, this picture of security where you dwell and ripped out of your home, ripped out of where you think you are safest. Because judgment comes suddenly. When people are feeling secure, it doesn't stop the Lord. The Lord is unstoppable. 
And so when the Lord wants to call someone like Doeg to accounts, he will. It doesn't matter how safe he feels. And thirdly, he'll be uprooted from the land of the living. And this is the picture of a tree. And, we, and we've seen this big, tall, giant oak trees knocked over with the roots up. As, as big and as powerful a man as Doeg may view himself, the Lord can knock him over like a matchstick. And so the judgment will come, and then the man who thought he was strong will be shown to be weak. The man who thought he was powerful will be broken. The man who thought he was secure will be uprooted. Next, we see the response of the righteous. Response of the righteous. And this is, this is another reason why God allows evil, so that we can learn from it. We've already learned what's going on in the heart of such evil. We've learned that it's really nothing more uncommon than what our hearts can be given to. Just loving using words to your own advantage. Loving twisting things a little bit. Loving patting yourself on the back with a clever play. You let that grow and develop and snowball and you can end up like Doeg. Oh, don't write him off as a sociopath. Just write him off as someone given over to his sin. Next, the response of the righteous. David says, The righteous shall see in fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. And so the righteous goes through a sort of a twofold response. First, fear and awe when God judges. The pictures of God's judgment in the Bible in this life are awesome and fearful. You can think of the ground swallowing Korah as he rebelled against Moses. You think of the, the, the waters coming in and drowning Pharaoh's army. You just think of the pictures of God's judgment when he does show up, the, the fire and brimstone in Sodom and Gomorrah. When God judges, it's a fearful thing. You put your hand over your mouth, you're silenced. And God's people go from fear and awe at God, amazingly, to laughter. They go from silence to laughter. First is, wow, the God we serve is awesome. Wow, the God we serve is powerful. And you can picture the shift. David is scared of people like Doeg, but when God shows up to judge, it's laughable. That's the transition we go into here. Now, this is another thing I was really wrestling through in this psalm. And your English Bibles might make it a little unclear. To me, I was trying to wrestle, are, are the righteous like mocking, pointing at this guy in the face, laughing at him? And how does that fit into things? That's not actually what's going on in the Hebrew. Literally, it is they will laugh over him. It's the picture of triumphant victory. Not direct pointing the finger, mocking, but triumphant victory. God's righteous when they see him act. When God comes to set things right and settle the score and we are there to witness it, we will go from just awe to rejoicing and triumph over God's enemies. This is, this is the victory celebration that we will experience this is what awaits. If we think that in this world evil men are powerful, there's going to come a day, and, and it seems like it's coming sooner and sooner, 2,000 years now from the cross, when God's ultimate victory over his enemies will be seen, and when we will be on the winning side, when we will be the victors in Christ, when we will be the ones rejoicing in our victorious and holy God. That's what the righteous will do. Um... This isn't mocking directly at them. Proverbs um, 24, 17 warns us, in fact, do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased. So, the, so 
This is a rejoicing over them. And we also see the futility of trusting in money and self. And this really brings up the final section of the psalm and the big contrast in the psalm. We see here what Doeg was trusting in. See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. A lot of times when I share my faith and people give their excuses for why, oh no, they won't stand before God or oh no, why they will be let off. I'll try to warn them that whatever they're trusting in, usually it's something like my good works or not my bad works or something like that. I'll try to warn them that they're, they're seeking refuge in a cardboard bomb shelter. It's not going to provide any protection. And, and the great tragedy is that God is offering to be a refuge. Even to someone like Doeg, God was willing to forgive him if he would turn to him in, in faith. See the man who would not make God his refuge but chose rather to trust in the abundance of his riches. Doeg was putting more trust in the power and the money that he could get by, by getting Saul's favor than he did in the favor of God. And ironically, he sought refuge in his own destruction. The very thing that raised God's anger towards him was the thing he was trusting in to deliver him. I mean, you see the irony there. He sought refuge in his own destruction. The very things that he will be judged for, lying, murder, manipulation, deceit, those are the very things he was hoping would deliver him. And so it does become comical in a sad sense. The futility of trusting in money in oneself. And it's, it's just like another proverb says, Proverbs eleven twenty eight: whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Which brings us now to our third point, David's own personal response. We've, we've taken a look at the character of someone like Doeg. We've taken a look at the character of the wicked and his fate. We've seen the response that God's people are supposed to draw from this. Fear and ultimate rejoicing. To learn the futility of trusting in things other than God. Finally, how does David himself respond? How does he himself deal with this? This is his personal response. The security of the saints. And it's just such a beautiful contrast. And here the contrast of the psalm really comes to light. Doeg was this big, mighty man, this big, tall tree that God uprooted, knocked over like a matchstick. David says, but I'm like a green olive tree in the house of God. I may not be as big and tough as Doeg, but I'm secure. I'm like a cultivated and tended tree in the house of God. And in that climate in the Middle East, green trees are tended, cared for trees. And, and David says, in contrast, Doeg may seem all tough, the Lord's going to knock him over. He's going to uproot him, and I am like a tended plant. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. Now you see that contrast with verse 7? Verse 7, here's a man who trusted in the abundance of his riches. David trusts in the steadfast love of God. And for a, such a dark psalm, it's bookended by God's steadfast love in verse 8 and verse 1. That term translated in your English Bibles, my ESV is steadfast love, is a special Hebrew term, chesed, that speaks of God's covenant love. It's only ever used of his love towards his people who are trusting in him by faith. There's a sense in which God loves the world. There's a sense in which God loves the sparrows. There's a sense in which God loves everyone. 
God's steadfast love, his covenant loyal love is only extended to those people who are in union with him by faith. And that is what God has trusted, what David rather is trusting in, God's covenant love. God has made promises to me, David is saying, by faith. and I'm receiving them by faith. That's what I'm trusting in. That's what I am banking in. And that's why I'm immovable. That's why I'm a protected tree. Said the man fleeing for his life. Understand that. This is not a promise for prosperity. This is not a text to advance the prosperity gospel. David has been fleeing for his life. Barely one step ahead of his pursuers. Pretending to be mad at one time. Living in caves at another. But he understands spiritually. As long as he's right with God, he couldn't be in a safer place. I mean, think, see the irony and the boldness of David's response. Doeg seems to be the winner at this point. Doeg seems to be triumphant. David's running for his life. But Doeg's the one who will be knocked over, and David's the one who is safe and secure as a growing tree. Very similar to Psalm 1, where... The psalmist says, of the righteous, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. His leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff. The wind blows away. And we see David's abiding trust in the Lord's covenant love. It bookends this psalm. And this is one of the big differences between the righteous and the wicked. And this is the sort of the challenge I'll throw out to you here today. What are you trusting in? Are you trusting in your smarts? Are you trusting in your brawn? Are you trusting in your money? Are you trusting in your connections? Are you trusting in what this world has to offer? Are you trusting? Is your hope, is your only trust in the living God and his gospel and his covenant love? If, if your hope is in anything else other than the Lord Jesus Christ and in God's gospel, you are trusting in a cardboard bomb shelter. It will not deliver you. It will not protect you. It will actually, whatever you are trusting in that is not God, is your idol, is actually going to bring judgment. That same irony of trusting in your destruction, seeking refuge in your destruction. There are so many that do that. And we should be like David. When we encounter horrible evil, rather than faltering our faith, rather than saying, I don't know if I can believe in a God that would allow this to happen, David renews his commitment to God because he views the outcome of the wicked. It's only through having a long view of history this starts to make sense. The wicked will perish. The wicked will be judged. God's steadfast love endures the entire day. And here, in verse 8, forever and ever. Therefore, we move on to faith and future grace. David says, I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. What I mean by faith and future grace is this. David is so confident of God's promise to judge, which is revealed elsewhere in Scripture, that he acts inwardly. He's rejoicing inwardly as if it's already done. He says, I will thank you forever because you have done it. Well, wait a second. David's running for his life. Doeg's rich and the big cheese in town. But you see, he's so confident of the grace to come. He's so confident of God's coming justice God's coming protection for himself that he acts as though it's a done deal. Even on the very next sentence, he recognizes it's not really done. He says, I will wait for your name. It's already done, but I'm waiting. And that's sort of the attitude as Christians we should have. This sort of now, not yet tension. 
That, that the things that God has promised for us are as sure as if we have them. It's why Ephesians 1.3 can say that, that we have been seated in the heavenly places in Christ. That we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. It's why Romans 8 can talk about those whom he justified, he also glorified. Past tense. Because when God says he will do something, it is as good as done. And so on the one hand, David's faith in God's future grace is that confident that he can say, you've done it. The wrong has been righted. And I'm going to wait for you to do it. I'm going to wait for your name. There's this tension that we have as believers. You've done it, but I'm going to wait for you to do it. And ultimately, this leads David to corporate worship and praise. Which is so often where the Psalms go. What becomes initially becomes an individual struggle develops into a corporate struggle. As David says, it's good to wait for God's name in the presence of the godly with other believers. And, that, and that's sort of the final piece, I think, to the puzzle when we're dealing with evil is the body of Christ. Other believers are so helpful in that as we take comfort in praising God together, as we encourage each other's faith. This, if you're going to deal with great evil, you're going to need other people. And as David waits on God's justice and judgment, confident will come. He wants to do it with the other people of faith. And so to summarize... And our three points. How do you respond to horrific evil? One of the ways Psalm 52 shows us is you take a good look at the evil and look at the root of the evil. Don't get, don't get, don't get distracted by the fruit. Look at the root and understand that the root is common to all of us. We feel so much better if we tell ourselves that the Adolf Hitlers of the world, oh, they're just sick in the head. They're just, you know, really bad guys. The truth is, the same hard issues going on in them are going on in us. And if we don't fight sin, if we don't mortify the flesh, who knows what fruit it will bear in our lives. There but the grace of God go us. So David takes a long, hard look at Doeg. He realizes that at his heart, this is Doeg's obsession with deceit, deception, with, with pole positioning and, and advance and currying favor and everything else comes out of that. This is a man who trusts in the things of this world. And, and next we see the response of the righteous and what we're to learn from it. So we learn about the character of evil. So we guard ourselves from it. We, we learn about the awesome wonder of God's judgment when it comes. The joy we will have when the final victory is proclaimed. We see the futility of trusting in money. And personally, in the moment, what do we do now? Renew our trust in God. Understand that the wicked who are prospering around us, the, the, this is just their day, and like the grass that grows, they'll wither and die. God's love endures forever and ever. His covenant love, the gospel, and all that it promises lasts forever. Rather than be a cause to make our faith stumble, David says he renews his confidence in the promises of God as he reminds himself of how fleeting and short-lived are the victories of the evil in this world. And finally, he comes together with God's people awaiting and trusting in God's future grace. That's how David wants us to learn to respond to these types of evil. That's how he kept his faith strong. And that's how we can keep our faith strong. Lord God, this is a hard topic. Um, we encounter so much evil in this world. Lord, may we be instructed to, from your word, let us learn true character of evil so that we can attack it in our own lives. Let us take hope in your coming victory. And in the meantime, let us 
renew our faith and trust in you, encouraging each other's faith in the process. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.